Italian Radio Hour. Io sono Viviana and I would like to welcome back our regular listeners and also welcome any new listeners and everyone listening online at khbradio.com. Also be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at the Italian Radio Hour and subscribe to our YouTube channel to catch up on any past episodes. Vorrei dare il benvenuto ai nostri ascoltatori da tutto il mondo, grazie per essere con noi anche oggi mentre continuiamo il nostro viaggio per l'Italia e la cultura italiana. Well, in this episode, get ready to feel very hungry and feel the urgent need to jump on a plane to head to Rome as we talk to Katie Parla. Katie Parley is a Rome-based New York um, Times best-selling uh, cookbook author, food and beverage journalist, a culinary guide, educator, and Emmy-nominated television host. She has written, edited, and contributed to more than 35 books and co-hosts Gola, a podcast about Italian food culture with uh, Dr. Danielle Caligari. In our television shows, Katie Parless Rome, Katie Parless Roman Kitchen, and Gola on the Road appear on Recipe TV. In her cookbook, Food of the Italian South, Katie shares uh, rich recipes and historical and cultural insights that encapsulate the miles of rugged uh, beaches, shipped out in mountains, meditatively quiet towns, and most importantly, culinary traditions unique to this precious piece of Italy. And then we have also our beautiful tasting room, which will keep it as I'm a Roman and I would like to share um part of the conversation with Katie about it, but, but, but in the upcoming Food of the Italian Islands, which I just pre-ordered the other day, promises to be another bestseller, highlighting some places and traditions in Sicily and Sardinia that most people might not be either familiar with, or if you're familiar with, are very happy to see them being celebrated, like my own self. When not writing cookbooks or filling articles for publications uh, like uh, Sover Food and Wine, Australian Gourmet Traveler Eater, The New York Times, you can find Katie leading culinary walking tours of Rome and appearing on television programs like Stanley Tucci, Searching for Italy on CNN and Chef's Table on Netflix. Ma prima pubblicità. Parli italiano? Do you want to learn, improve or master your Italian? Istituto Mondo Italiano can help. Located in the heart of Regent Square, Mondo Italiano offers small group classes and one-on-one private tutoring to help you learn Italian in no time. Visit us online at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org. Un caffè, per favore. My first cup of coffee sets the tone for my entire day and I get my coffee at La Prima Espresso. La Prima has been brewing Pittsburgh's best coffee for nearly 35 years. Try any of their in-house roasted varieties of beans from all over the world at home, or come and enjoy an espresso or a cappuccino at any of their locations where their friendly baristas and familiar faces will make you feel at home. Because a trip to La Prima is like a little trip to Italy, only closer to home. Well, we are so excited finally to bring our friend Katie on the program. Ciao Katie, benvenuta, I'm so happy to have you. Grazie, sono felicissima di esserci. So, how how are you? How is Roma today? You have gone through some major like a heat waves, right? <laughs> oh my god, it's been so hot. My uh terrace plants don't know what to do and it's very chaotic, but I'm actually not in Rome today. I'm in Brescia printing my new book. 
Oh, wow, wow, wow. Brescia. Brescia is such a beautiful city. I got a chance to spend some time uh, over the summer where I was all over the place. And uh, um, so how are you enjoying the city? Were you already familiar with Brescia or is this uh, um, or is the first time that you are visiting? This is probably my fourth time in Brescia. I will not see any of the city, but I will be inside a giant warehouse with a huge printer, making sure that all of the colors match up and that the book gets printed without a hitch. So I'm not doing anything that super like touristy. I'm not even probably going to eat a real meal because I got to make sure that book looks good. Yes. And actually, I, I think uh, one, one of the, um, the things that impressed me, and again, it gets as real with you, it, get, it is as real as it is. Um, you will be sharing, you have already shared some uh, of the processes about uh, a book coming to life. Um, and uh, because there might be some also glamorous aria uh, about uh, some of the things and uh, you're going to put some facts associated with it just to educate your readers who will appreciate being part of uh, of the process. So I'm looking forward to whether it's going to be also newsletters or Instagram updates on what's uh, what's going on uh, for this, uh, this wonderful book to come out. We have, um, I'm very gracious that we do have some time for our conversation. So I actually like to go back to when it all started. But I was actually curious to find out a little bit about where you're originally from and what was your relationship with food? Um, you know, some of the traditions that maybe you shared or didn't share in your own household that might have shaped eventually your, your future career. Well, I'm originally from New Jersey, like so many New Jerseyans. I am Italian-American, but had absolutely no idea what being Italian meant until I was 16 and visited Italy and saw that there was a huge difference between Italian-American culture and Italian culture. And I just became obsessed with understanding the difference. Um, I definitely grew up eating a mixture of like American food and Italian-American food. And, you know, my family... Uh, emigrated to the United States in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. So by the time I roll around in the 80s, there are already three or four generations of assimilation there. And, you know, there was, um, I would say, there was pasta uh, on the table three or four nights a week. Um, but the, the sort of structure of Italian meals, the culture of Italian food is something that was totally foreign to me when I visited for the first time in high school. And then when I moved to Italy uh, mm -hmm. in 2003, so I had a lot of learning to do, but I was curious and hungry. Uh, I wonder if you have uh, given the answers to some of the questions, which people are still studying about the transition from Italian food to Italian American. And uh, should we consider two different types of cuisine or one, the evolution of the other? Uh, I was having a conversation with, um, uh, we're going to have a guest who has recently um, written a book about it. I was talking to some university professors about some of the changes of ingredients, uh, like for instance, um, in uh, chicken parmigiana, which you will now find in Italy, that will be basically, you know, mostly eggplant or just, uh, and uh, as maybe an evolution of also the status of the immigrant community where maybe they didn't have access to so much meat back home. And here is, okay, now I, instead of just using a vegetable, I can use something else that um, to show that I can, I don't know, I can afford it. So we'll see. There are a lot of open questions on that. So 
you say that you came in on this, uh, when you were 16 and uh, did you, you completed some of your studies also in, uh, in, in Italy, correct? So um, after I got my bachelor's degree in art history, I moved to Rome and then did my master's in Italian gastronomic culture at uh, Università dei Studi Tor Vergata. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, my master's, my graduate studies are in Italy. I did my SOM certification. I was even like still very into archaeology at the time. So I did an archaeological speleology degree with the city of Rome. Um, but my like high school and college were in the States um, where I was really into food. I mean, like I grew up being obsessed with food. I, my parents met in the restaurant business. I was always around it in also like my after school jobs and my college jobs. Like I worked at the bagel place in high school. I worked at pizzerias in college and was always just, I think, really interested in what people eat. Uh, why they eat it and how it's changed. And what's so interesting to me about the, the eggplant Parmesan, chicken Parmesan conversation is that most parts of Italy weren't consuming eggplant Parmesan when this migration was going on. It was something that was very typical of the South. Eggplants still had a bit of a stigma around them in Central and Northern Italy at the turn of the 20th century. And so the way that we in 2022 reflect on Italian cuisine is often really anachronistic. And we're casting the food of, you know, our immigrant ancestors with a 21st century lens. And, you know, we know this very well, that the food of Italy changed dramatically in the 20th century, especially during the fascist era, especially in the 60s when there was a migration away from the countryside into cities. And so I think it's something that we still have to grapple with and something that hasn't really been delved into very deeply, um, simply because it's, it's modern. You know, modern Italy is uh, is something that's constantly evolving and, and the study of it is, is always in flux. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so after completing your master, do you return to the U.S. or were you able to somehow find um, a, a way to uh, remain in, uh, in, in Rome or in Italy? Well, I mean, I went to Italy after I graduated from college. I had no idea that you could study food. No one told me. I was pretty pissed off, honestly, when I found out that there was a graduate program in this topic. And so I was already in Italy for three years when I started investigating food in a more academic way. Um, And I decided when I was 16 during my first trip that I was going to move to Italy when I grew up and literally never had a backup plan. So when I moved after college, it was like, that was it. I moved with enough money uh, so that I, if I couldn't find a job, I could still survive for a year. I worked all through high school and college with like a bank account with that fund in mind. Um, and yeah, it wasn't until a few years after settling in Italy, like working as a guide, doing archaeological tours and writing about culture and sometimes food that I realized that food was frankly my calling or more specifically gastronomic culture and dissecting it for people was my calling. And so um, even though I had the sort of art historical and, ar- and archaeological background from my previous studies, I decided like I'm doing food. Um, mm-hmm. and most people didn't care at the time because it wasn't yet <laughs> a thing that visitors prioritize the way that they do today, but it's kind of evolved out of, out of that over the past 20 years. And actually that brings, uh, to my next, uh, question is what other experience can a first time traveler to Rome or maybe a returning traveler to Rome, have with your food tours because I have heard 
Excellent comments, excellent feedback. Uh, my co-host Katie, who is currently in India traveling, uh, missing out on this conversation. Um, she, she, she's a foodie and she makes a point every time she goes, uh, whether in Italy or to always take a food tour. And she was totally uh, super excited. I mean, I cannot tell you she couldn't contain her excitement when she was talking about your food tours. Um, can you tell us a little bit um, some of the experiences uh, or uh, if you have a variety of different tours that the traveler can choose from? For sure. First of all, I'm very grateful and appreciative of Katie and the other visitors who have taken my tours who have given positive feedback. My sort of my thesis is like we all eat, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we all should be allowed to give food tours. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that the food of Rome, although it's easy to love, is actually very complex and deserves curation with deep knowledge to back it up. And so I developed a series of tours. They are neighborhood immersions blended with food. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example of my favorite. Uh, it's the Pratian Triomfale tour, mm-hmm. where we go to two adjacent neighborhoods that are just north of the Vatican, a place where you would assume that there's awful food, but where there is actually spectacular food and wonderful market culture and excellent baking. And get this, real live Romans live there. It's not Campo dei Fiori. Mm-hmm. And so through the Prati and Triomfale districts, um, parallel developments in the early 20th century, the um, kind of diversion of their modern food cultures because of the economics and demographics of those neighborhoods, we dive into what people eat today how it changes even from one neighborhood to the next, how people engage with the food system. And then above all, we're we're snacking, we're becoming friends. It's a conversation where I'm the resource of that first-time traveler or someone who's been to Rome 85 times and has a deep understanding. And through curated tastings, both of food as well as beverage, we talk about the food culture of Rome and how it has developed and why it's important that we support small businesses when we are engaging with the city. So like Triomphale Tour usually starts at the market, 200 stalls. It's the most spectacularly beautiful place in Rome, in my opinion. Like the Coliseum's great and everything, but the Triomphale Market's perfect. <laughs> um, the uh, the tour could diverge. I mean, I always customize things. So people give me input on what their priorities are. And then I choose places to take them after that. We might go and have um, a tasting of various cheeses and ricotta at La Tradizione, which is this awesome deli. We could go to uh, Panificio Bonci for some of the most delicious bread. And because the owner of Panificio Bonci is super famous for like pizza and bread, sometimes people stick to that. But what's really excellent there are like the tomatoes stuffed with rice that have been cooked until they burst. buono. <laughs> Now we have to say goodbye to those because it's no longer summertime. So we're saying hello to the heavier dishes, uh, roasted chicken and things like this that will carry us through the cold months. And so, you know, through these particular items and and, uh, sort of consuming these things and talking about the people making them, we're engaging in these sort of sacred rituals that we in Rome take part in every single day as we encounter food. And uh, also, this is, uh, for instance, uh, a couple of things I've noticed. Uh, when I was in the region of Brescia, Bergamo, and so forth, and there are some special pasta dishes there, um, I I personally like to try um, what I 
I've read it might be the, the local specialty, but also some dishes that I have no clue what they're going to present to me that happened in Sardinia where I ended up with some brain, blah, blah, blah. But I actually asked the lady, I want to try, you know, what a person from here in Nuoro, don't say Nuoro, Nuoro would, uh, would order. And, uh, but I was, for, um, I was feeling a little sorry for the, um, tourists around me that went, you know, uh, Bergamo has a specific, uh, pasta shapes and, and dishes with the lasagna or some of the things that they were familiar with, which to me, it kind of, uh, counteracts, not counteracts, but it's kind of, uh, you it's if you're going to a place to experience what you're not familiar with. Otherwise, you could get a lasagna also in your country of origin, even though, you know. Um, and uh, so these uh, food tours are very important to make, to create an experience uh, so that the traveler uh, or the tourists, you know, I still make a little uh, distinction between the two of them. Don't just go and snap pictures in front of the museums mm-hmm. and say, okay, check, check, check are getting a taste, no pun intended, of the, the the local culture. So and the fact that these small businesses thrive not only on local business, but they're not their products are not going to get exported. Um and it's some of them are family tradition family businesses. So the tradition's been passed on. And uh it, it's amazing to see again how they operate and some of those places you walk in and the smell, the aroma uh, whether it's biscotti or something else, it just, and that's, that's Italy in a nutshell, you know, um, a, some, a country that awakens all of your five senses. And, uh, um, so. Yeah. Uh, but I was saying, like, I am a pretty well-traveled person in Italy and I still find it very challenging parachuting into a place like Brescia or Bergamo where there isn't a ton of, of writing about what's going on. And so I speak fluent Italian. You, of course, speak fluent Italian. And so we're a bit more uh, adept at navigating unknown dishes and menus, or or we know that there's stuff that's off the menu that you have to ask for that's seasonal, that doesn't make it onto the year-on menu. So I would suggest for people who are visiting, just like learn a couple phrases, um, ask for like things that are in season, because it's expensive to print a menu. So a lot of people just print what's going to be on the uh, on the table 12 months a year and those hyper seasonal things like mushroom dishes in uh, in the fall for example like those are things that uh, are going to be spoken as daily specials mm-hmm. and I would also encourage like leave the center because Chandro tends to be where a lot of people work uh, it tends to be where a lot of the money is and so the dining experiences can sometimes be a little bit less I mean this is a loaded word authentic Mm-hmm. Um, especially up north where there is like, frankly, especially compared to my experiences in other parts of Italy, there's just so much money to spend on, uh, f- conspicuous consumption of food. And so the, the experience of a restaurant in, in central Brescia might actually be like a very modern one with a lot of phones and squirty bottle designs, which is like kind of not what, what people are doing at home. <laughs> Definitely not what people are doing at home. Yeah. Um, and so leaving, leaving the sort of posh districts is always, I think, useful for understanding what everyone else eats. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, for instance, as a, as a Roman, um, and this 
kind of, uh, it's another curiosity of mine that I was going to ask you, the connection between the expat community and the locals, um, because some of them have uh, uh, made a point to integrate into the fabric. Others, maybe because they are transient, maybe they're on an assignment, so they know that that is going to be two or three years. Uh, maybe they it's easier to connect with people that speak the same language. But when I um, you know, when I see on different, uh, uh, Facebook pages, you know, the, the, how some people are not able to connect with the local communities because I, I live in a different neighborhood in Rome. I wouldn't go to downtown Rome to eat a meal. Um, I will probably not necessarily stay within my neighborhood. We'll drive a, a you know, a length to go to a good restaurant, but uh, um, we don't associate necessarily, not because there are not good restaurants in downtown Rome, absolutely, I'm not saying that, uh, but that's it's more like living the life, uh, living Rome as a tourist versus living Rome as a, as a local. And uh, so there is always these parallel lives. And, uh, you know, again, yes. some people like yourselves have integrated um, uh, very, very successful. I, I think you are more Roman than I am because you live it every single day. <laughs> At least when I drive, probably. <laughs> so, and also that, uh, leads you to, uh, leads me to ask you about your city guides as well. So kind of, uh, you really have your, your, your knowledge spans in uh, many different directions. Do you also organize um, um, events and um, special things? <laughs> so I do write a series of city guides. Like if I go to Modena or Venice, I'll write down all the interesting things that I found. Um, in terms of organizing events, I tend to do those in Rome when I have a book out mm-hmm. so that people can get their book signed and we can talk about the book one-on-one. For other events, it's really important for me to like engage with people about Italian food and regional cuisine. And so what I love to do when I visit the States is to do events in different cities, whether that's like Jersey City, Pittsburgh, Rochester, Los Angeles. I'm like, there's no place I won't go. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's always so exciting to work with a restaurant or with a wine bar to craft a menu that's really honing in on uh, on a theme mm-hmm. and drilling down on that theme so that rather than serving, you know, all the like greatest hits, mm-hmm. you can actually serve dishes that are unfamiliar and have a story to tell. So that's what I like. I love doing that so much. So I'm mm-hmm. very happy now that uh, travel's a bit more open so that I can recommence that uh, very important feature. Yes, and when uh, we talk about stories, uh, before we dive into your books, it's also your podcast. Uh, we're from the Frizzantissima episode to Pizza, Pinza, Pizza al Taglio, Pizza la Pala. Uh, you and uh, Danielle, if I can call her for, by her first name, diving into the curiosities, some of the history, the comments, or again, um, pizza is so hard to, uh, to define. It comes in different shapes and, uh, and, uh, flavors based on the regional uh experience of uh of that so very very definitely enjoyable conversation um now uh let's after all these and and, and the, um let's get to uh the books okay and not necessarily in a chronological order uh but what i do like is your interest in highlighting again some of what it might be the um 
you know, some of the traditions, for instance, in Rome that people might be familiar with, uh, plus much more. Okay. And uh, what is the balance between, in, and this is also in your personal life, between the um, uh, recreation of uh, the usual sus, no, I want to call them the usual suspects, but you know, the, the, the big famous dishes, um, and new recipe development. That's a great question. I mean, I think for, for example, for tasting Rome, there was very little in the, in the form of evolved Roman food. And I have to admit that I have failed spectacularly because it was my dream that people would open that book and be like, carbonara who? Let's make this um, fettuccine with chicken gizzards <laughs> and no <laughs> one did that. Um, you know, when we talk about Rome's a great example. So when we talk about like the greatest hits, there's this like myth of the four pastas as though there are only four pastas in Rome. <laughs> for me, Pace, Pepe, Carbonara, Gricia, Matriciano, those are fine and delicious. But when a Roman thinks of pasta, it really transcends that classification. And it could be um, bombolotti uh, al sugo di coda. Mm-hmm. Like for me, that's even more profoundly Roman than any of the aforementioned pastas, half rigatoni with the sauce that oxtails have simmered in. And it's one of the great expressions of Roman practicality where you use the sauce that something delicious has cooked in and release its fat into to dress pasta. And so you have like a one pot, two uh, two dish scenario or fettuccine with chicken gizzards and hearts and livers is so profoundly Roman in a way that carbonara kind of isn't considering it's very new mm-hmm. being codified only in like 1959 or 1960 mm-hmm. when recipes like those of Ottoboni included like all sorts of crazy things, butter, garlic, stuff that would cause people to be crucified on the Apian way if they tried to pull that off today. Uh-huh. Yes, even because, as I said, the, the Roman tradition, it was uh, also very um, make make do or whatever it is, wherever, and organs. <laughs> and you wouldn't, uh, <clears throat> you wouldn't um, toss anything. You would probably just put it there and figure out something. And then eventually maybe they got codified into recipes um, and uh, in the way that we expect uh, them to be uh, deciphered and described for us to uh, to replicate. But we're talking about the development of food when food was to feed people, not to uh, be uh, featured in a fancy, you know. So there is a huge, you know, it, when you go to, and especially Rome, talk about the, the food traditions, expect to see... <laughs> A lot of things that maybe you wouldn't even dare to to get close. And there's also this, um, you know, when people write about Roman food, they tend to be incredibly reductive about things and cast everything as though it's the cucina povera, like the poor food of Rome. When if you scroll through the pages of Renaissance people cookbooks, they're also eating cow udders and gizzards and livers. Why? Because Mm -hmm. when cooked properly, they are so delicious. Mm-hmm. And the most desperately impoverished shepherd and the wealthiest papal court member had mm-hmm. access to some, a lot of the same things. Spices mm-hmm. tended to be in the category of the elite. Salt tended to be an elite ingredient. Oh. But many of the ingredients were overlapping. And even, even a shepherd who was often cast as someone without taste was mm-hmm. actually making food to taste delicious because 
even when we have very little, we want our food to taste good so that we have some dignity at the table. And that's universal. That's not unique uh, to Rome, but all of Italy, in fact, most of the world. Yes. And uh, when we talk about uh, tasting, uh, I mean, um, um, tasteful food, it doesn't, uh, uh, it's not a cacophony of spices and is actually less is better, uh, more, uh, more frequently than that. Then you took us to the Italian South, okay, with a beautiful picture here that, as I said, everyone expects you to be hungry. Uh, is this a focaccia barese right off uh, the spot or am I... <laughs> it's a focaccia barese and while i wish that every single reader had like a barese bakery level oven at home probably <laughs> you don't and so the recipe of the cover focaccia features a hack so uh-huh. you can get that same almost like fried crispy bottom quality you cook the focaccia in a cast iron on the stove mm-hmm. first just to crisp up the bottom get a little lift and then you put it in the oven and it's a really uh it's a really delicious focaccia but first of all Viviana thank you so much for buying those books and for supporting an author I appreciate that oh, it's, it's the least as I said uh it's it's nice to like it's it's nice when you are from you know a country to see some of the specialties that also a lot of Italians are not familiar with so how many people might have had a tripa alla scapece I'm a big fan of tripa tripe uh and uh um actually I found um only a Chinese restaurant here in Pittsburgh that uh, uh, treats tripe the way it's supposed to. And then when I go to Rome with my dad, we go to the Mercato near the uh, station near Termini. And Il Tripaio is the first stop. The other one is one of the fish uh, vendors uh, and lots of bargaining there. Uh, then the curiosity among some of the vendors that might have what my dad would call a more exotic fruits and vegetables because he has not been exposed to, although he has traveled the world, but he wouldn't know how to. <laughs> and, uh, and together. So that's, that's, you know, uh, I, uh, cannolicchi di mare, which are obviously seasonal and very hard to get there. So when you see certain recipes here, of course, of course, <laughs> thank you for actually, um, your 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 commitment to uh to share uh that much of the italian uh cuisine now can we can we move a little bit about um towards uh, the food of the italian islands because i really have my heart on um, on asking you how the project came about and uh how did it be materialized and when you spent uh you know you went through wine island first and then the other or multiple trips, project over the years, you tell us everything. So, I mean, I always like to say, and this is hyperbole, that I started researching 22 years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> my first trip to the islands was when I was still in college before I moved to Italy. And I went to Palermo to visit uh, the neighborhood where my great grandfather was born. And I took a train from Rome in the middle of August you can imagine how unpleasant that was <laughs> to take uh-huh. a 15 hour train with the windows closed the whole time. Uh, not a great memory, but an important one. But, you know, I, I, I always was traveling with food in mind, even when I, even when I hadn't yet studied it, even when I wasn't writing about it. So um, I had all of these photos and business cards and memories and and things and diaries from my past travels. So after Food of the Italian South came out, 
I mean, even before it came out, I was already writing Food of the Italian Islands. So that's like 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, And just compiling notes in a Google Doc. And it started to take shape by 2020. And then the pandemic happened. So we couldn't go shoot the photos for the book until this past July. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think the the number of trips is impossible to estimate, but I've spent a lot of time traveling Sicily, Sardinia, Ponza, Procida, Ischia, Pantelleria, Linosa, Marettimo, Giglio. I mean, the list goes on. Some of those islands might be familiar to listeners. Some of them might be places that they're hearing about for the first time. Um, and I'm really, really passionate about giving people something that, th- that they can kind of anchor their knowledge onto. You hear Sicily, you you know, that's a big island in the Mediterranean. But if you heard about Sicily, then maybe you want to know about all of these other places that have different stories to tell about themselves, but still have a kind of Sicilian essence to them that binds them to uh, that major region. Ditto for Sicil- for Sardinia, I should say. And, um, you know, anyone who's been to either of those places know you can write a hundred books on each place. That's not how publishing works, however. (laughs) Um, And so I decided to craft the book in a way that adheres to the sort of series that started with Tasting Rome, moved to Food of the Italian South, uh, 85, 100 recipes, lots of vibrant vibrant photographs for people who like honestly don't want to cook, but just want to travel in their armchair, which is totally my vibe too. (laughs) (laughs) look if I had if I traveled to every single place uh for which I own a cookbook I would never work um but um and then provide features that uh maybe aren't explicitly food-based but do provide some sort of essence of essence of the islands like I have a a feature on the fiat panda pre-2003 edition for which we do own one (laughs) Uh, the one that looks like a helicopter and a tractor mated, um, mm-hmm. that beautiful design um, from 1980 to 2003, just like works like a dream, never breaks down. And you can actually rent them when you go to Pantelleria or to Ischia, like the local car rental companies will rent them to you. And I'm sure it's very uh, confusing to people who don't expect it, but they're very reliable vehicles and and it's impossible to paint a portrait of the islands without giving credit to that vehicle, which has been responsible for moving so much produce to market, so much wine to the ports, um, such an important feature of island life. And it's funny because you, you notice something that, you know, we would be taking for granted. Um, you know, people maybe would be spotting the old, uh, Fiat Cinquecento, uh, but seeing. Yes, and uh, but seeing the uh, you know uh, the Fiat Panda, the old model, because obviously Fiat has come up with a newer model, uh, which as I said, we currently own. That uh, uh, it was the time ours is from '83, so it doesn't have airbags. It only has one uh, mirror to the left side. So forget about having a radio or uh, you know any kind of uh, air condition there. But still. <laughs> It's, it's the car that when I go back home, I, you know, I get to, I get to drive. And uh, so these, uh, you know, it's, it's very challenging to kind of choose the, um, the itineraries for these trips because they're like Russian dolls. You know, you, you 
you might be going some somewhere with a purpose and then before you know you get a recommendation from a local person or maybe there is a sagra uh, or maybe something else that you were not expecting so the experience just enhances itself and I feel that I have to practice some self-moderation because my recent trip to Sardinia I actually went there just for the purpose of meeting two two people, two artists. One makes uh, wonderful uh, pasta wheels, um, and uh, the other one is a, <clears throat> a lady. Um, she defines herself as the contadina because uh, she was raised in the family had the property, but um, you know, so she was raised with uh, farming traditions, and now she passes on a lot of traditions, even the, I call them the holy breads, the ones that are done with the little uh, pinzette and very intricate. And we spent some time together. And then I was looking at all my pictures um, and I could at least count 18 different places that people sent me to that made this trip to Sardinia memorable in comparison to previous exposures to the island where I went with family, you know, you do the the, the coast and the typical vacanze in spiaggia um, that I think um, profoundly, you know, affected me in a good way, made it more like a spiritual trip. I think Sardinia, and I would like to have your uh, opinion has that aura. Um, there are certain traditions that are very meaningful. Food traditions, the festivals in Mamutones, and uh, it's not just a carnival spectacle, it's the reawakening of the earth. What was your impression um, about Sardinia? Sardinia is a universe, and it's one of the most overwhelming places for me to visit because it has such ancient culture. Obviously, Italy has ancient cultures, right? But I haven't found an entire region that is so devoted to traditions that have been lost elsewhere. Uh, You brought up the creation of these very elaborate breads. There are pasta traditions in which durum wheat uh, and water are transformed into sculptural or almost velvet-like pastas. And this is this is an ephemeral thing. This is something you make to, so that you eat it and then it's gone. But there's so much ritual and so much um, devotion to, to recreating these things. It's And th- we're just talking about the food now. Don't get me started about the knife culture, the shepherd culture, the filigree, the textiles. I mean, it's like, it's, it, just, it's, not, it's, it's over the top. And there's you know, sometimes this stereotype that the islanders don't really want visitors there. They don't want invaders for sure. And a lot of the graffiti in the island is about getting rid of like the Italian military bases and things like this. But I'm just so grateful that my Sardinian friends have been so incredibly generous Mm -hmm. with me. And many of them are named in the book. Uh, I've spent time cooking with them, photographing their beautiful Mm -hmm. creations. I'll continue to visit them. And this might not be for every listener, but um, I'll be going to Sardinia at the end of January for the Uccisino del Maiale, which is the, mm. the pig slaughter in Izili, which is just north of Cagliari. I'll be recording that, a really important sacred ritual mm-hmm. that is illegal to perform at home, but which some Sardinians uh, have chosen to continue anyhow. And it's a, it's a very heavy um complex thing to take uh-huh. part in so 
Uh, yeah, and uh, you know it's it's funny because you know Sardinia because historically uh, because its position has always been very appealing to uh, unfortunately has been as many parts of Italy invaded and conquered, but uh, the the Sardinian kings were very. Uh, well known for being hospitable and actually there is a name of one king um which translated into the word hospitality as we know it now uh back to roman times where he actually allowed the romans to come and we know what the romans did <laughs> and uh uh but uh talking about uh, the little town that uh you had mentioned again I was with Annalisa uh, getting and um, you know doing those uh she taught me how to um you know be creative with those breads and um we made fregola together which you have also a beautiful picture from a, a domo antiga because i recognize the apron uh we were making a, a fiore sardo as well i think I, I think we had some of the um uh common facilitators of this uh wonderful uh experience but uh specifically the little town that you mentioned we know colurjones those uh big fat you know uh um let's call them dumplings you know uh but which are beautiful i love the the scene there was a sagra of uh, Coca, I'm trying to remember the name of it once I get to the right picture, but it's uh, it's very similar, but the seam, instead of being on top, is made on the side and uh, it's actually fried. It was, oh, yeah. uh, it was delicious. And uh, uh, so uh, Coca uh, das, that was, uh, that was it. And then I got my first exposure to some of the, um, you know, those uh, masked um, events that we're talking about, um, uh, which also have um, profound um, traditions. And uh, uh, when you do see the mamutones uh, and um, and the other figure, the name escapes me. It looks more like a Spanish, you know, because it has the white mask and the, uh, the red shirt and the white pants and they have a lasso. Um, because it is indeed a fertility ritual, people don't, don't realize that. They think it's just some, you know, carnival thing. Their, their task is actually to go around the crowd and with the lasso, <clears throat> trying to get the young, beautiful girls. So, um, some of the Italian tourists that were there from up north didn't know about this meaning. So when they saw their wives being lazoed, if I can make a verb out of it, <laughs> they was like, what's going on here? <laughs> they were totally panicking. It was, uh, it was hysterical. So yeah, the other characters in, in this almost bacchanalian type of situation the isadores yes that's it yes the isadores yeah 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 so uh now you talked also about uh um you know sardinia is uh is is famous not only for the um <clears throat> the food and, and the cheese you mentioned uh also the uh the gold traditions which i personally uh enjoyed very much um I was lucky enough to be there when they had the <clears throat> the trade for uh, all the artisans, La Fiera dell'Artigianato. So in one spot, I could have a first exposure to um, everything. I was like, um, I don't have uh, suitcases that are big enough, but actually um, I did acquire quite a few um, items that eventually led me. I flew into Cagliari um, to actually 
have my rental car and put that on the boat and then leave it in Rome because there's no way that an airline would have allowed me to come back home with five pieces of luggage. Practical. That's that practical Roman side of you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, how can I understand? So um, uh, let me see. Um, what's uh, um, I think uh, the word spare time or time off um, might be something not always on your dictionary. But uh, uh, and if there is anything that you want to add about your this book or any of the other books, um, please, uh, by all means. Um, First of all, I do not know what spare time is. I'm too busy researching, um, <laughs> but it's so fun. I think what I would mention about Food of the Italian Islands is that I'm publishing it independently and therefore I can put whatever I want in it. There's even a horse steak recipe as a nod to the cultura catanese. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm just so excited, not just to share the book, but also the process of bookmaking so that hopefully mm-hmm. other people can be inspired to produce books, own their intellectual property and sell books for a profit rather than enriching large corporate publishers that exploit authors. So that's my, that's my finale. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's absolutely, it's very important to, again, uh, to, to say, because uh, we might just have, you know, blinders or being blindfold and not knowing about the, the process that so we just, um, you know, but uh, it's not only the expenses because all these uh, research, you know, the, the going and the staying and the, whatever it, at the time, because then span over time, um, coming up with a book, it is very expensive before it, it even goes into print. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is important work. The people who are documenting these lost and disappearing dishes or who are enlightening people about the culture, not just of Italy, but really of, of any food culture, it's not charity. We can't be doing it for free or at a loss, but unfortunately the structure of corporate publishing is such that the author has Mm -hmm. to fund not just the research, but a lot of the book production, which is not that cool. Mm -hmm. Um, So support your local bookstore and order food of the Italian islands Mm -hmm. available March 7th. Yes. And we, we really hope that uh, if you're considering uh, coming to uh, back to the U S for some uh, tours on the East coast, maybe we can have you in Pittsburgh. That will be a dream come true, by the way. I would love to come back. I had a great time last book tour and it was so much fun. Pittsburgh's great. So uh, Katie is a traveler, not for work. Okay. Um, I think, um, was it Mexico that you were to recently? It's like for yes. a second. I mean, I don't see you necessarily playing passenger, but I had, I got a feel that it was nice to be taken around. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. how, how is uh, Katie as a, as a, a traveler, you know, um, where you, the traveler is not, uh, tied to work. So yeah, I went to the States for a book tour for, to support my last book, uh, the joy of pizza with Dan Richer and a friend got married in Oaxaca. So I flew down to Mexico and spent a few days there and then went to Mexico city. And I had a really wonderful experience doing a food tour and I take people on food tours every day. So I, I never stopped to think about the experience. Um, in as the sort of user, I'm like, I've got all this information. I got to tell you everything. I want you to eat all these things. And I'm just like spewing information at you. 
But being on the other side of that was really instructive. And I think my food tours are going to benefit from having done this, you know, full day uh, private tour in Mexico City, a place that I'd never been before, a place that it is crazy to go to for 36 hours, would not mm-hmm. recommend. You should do like eight to 10 days. But <laughs> but it was, you know, it was a rare thing. I don't usually slow down or uh, take my time and like research I'm like kind of a chaotic traveler. Um, So it was a, it was, it was a fun few days and hopefully I can go back con calma the next time. Well, it's actually funny when you say that the chaotic traveler, because usually the feedback I get from my students or anyone that enjoys some of the pictures that I post is like how, you know, how much preparation you put into these trips. And I say usually the airline ticket and the first night and then the rest is TBD. Um, you know, I might look into some of the things Um but not is I, I do research while I'm there. For some reason, I got accustomed to these process or lack of that is mine especially when I travel by myself where I don't you know I don't have anyone else to be responsible for but uh, my own and again this this trip um, every single discovery was dictated by just a little chat over dinner with the restaurant owner uh, have you been there have you seen that I was like no let me and then I would go home and check it out and or maybe the news oh the king of tabulara oh, would it be awesome to meet him? And then things happened. And um, uh, so that gives the authentic is the recommendation that the locals are going to tell and uh, that enhance your experience. Uh, so again, we have maybe a minute or so. Uh, can we talk about Katie as a regular Rome resident? Uh, do you have some uh, daily uh, routines or where would we catch you? Clothes shopping or, you know, I love, I love the Mercatini. You know, that's the, my, my biggest weakness uh, in Rome. I go go clothes shopping once a year to get all my basics. And then I actually hire a friend of mine who does private uh, shopping. Like a stylist. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I am incompetent in the fashion department. And I have been told I need to like look like a grown up by my mother, of course. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and yeah, so she like knows all the cool artisans and people doing awesome things. I really like to support small businesses. So while it's convenient for me to like run over to the gap on Villa del Corso to get all my white t-shirts for the year. I also want to have those like small pieces, dresses and things that are supporting local businesses. Uh, my friend in question is called Alyssa Weinstein. Um, but my daily ritual is I get up, I go to the mer- uh, Mercato. I live in Monteverde Vecchio. So I actually have two different Mercati to choose from. Uh-huh. I do produce shopping. I go to work. I drink a lot of coffee. Mostly I eat pizza, um, pizza rossa al taglio or alla pala yes. for uh-huh. breakfast. <laughs> I graze uh, for the rest of the day with, uh, with my clients as we're doing food tours. I meet friends for aperitivo. I go home, I do a Peloton ride and I, I write for five hours and go to bed. <laughs> yes, and uh, when we talk about pizza rosa, it's hard to understand. But again, these are some of the daily food traditions. Like even for me going to school, I would stop at the panetteria, get a little piece of pizza bianca, which is just white. Uh, I cannot even say white pizza. It's just, 
the dough with grain salt, you know, and then he would, the panettiere would slice in half, put a nice slice of mortadella, maybe two. And that was our lunch or it could be your merenda in the afternoon. And uh, so pizza rosa would be the equivalent to where it is uh, freshly baked and it's nothing to do with the pizza that you would get in a pizzeria at night. I mean, in the evening or in a restaurant. So you have to go to Rome. I'm telling you, you know, Katie will take you around to all these uh, these beautiful spots. Uh, well, unfortunately, our hour is up and uh, Il Big Ben, a little stop. I would like to, again, thank you for uh, being with us for uh, the full um, hour. And uh, It's been a great pleasure, Viviana. Thank you very much. It would be. So it is time for us to say arrivederci e alla prossima. We want to thank you for tuning in to the program. If you have any questions or comments or if you have any trouble topics you would like us to address, please contact us at theitalianradiohour at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And remember, if you or any of your family and friends have missed a prior episode or would like to listen to this episode again, please visit our website at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org and click on the Radio Hour tab to catch on um, past past, um, episodes wherever you are. And you can also find our episodes on wherever you listen to your regular podcasts. We would like to thank our guest, Katie Patla, our sponsors, Istituto Mondo Italiano, La Prima Espresso, and La Boara for the music. Remember, if you're not living in the Pittsburgh area or might be out of town, you can catch us streaming live at khbradio.com every Thursday at 5 o'clock. And be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at Italian Radio Hour. Until next time, alla prossima. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. Thank you.